to see you here, really. Thanks very much, Stephen. Yeah, and uh, you've had quite a journey, it seems. Yes, I have. It's And it's been a long time. When's the first time you reached out? I think it was a year ago, maybe, right? Possibly, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, I'm a, sorry. it's a good time to uh, actually speak with you because my channel has grown a lot over the last year, so it'll bring a lot more eyes to your work, which I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for it too. Good work. Good work. And um, I enjoyed your conversations with Matt Fraud and everything too. I can't promise I can be as good as Matt Fraud, but <laughs> we'll do our best. No, no worries. <laughs> no He's a phenom. He's amazing. Yeah. And so. um, how long would you like to speak for today, Stephen? Whatever you want. You sent that amazing list of uh, sort of a breakdown of things. And I think it's pretty comprehensive. That's about everything we could talk about, probably, if we're talking about education. So yeah. um, I'm, I'm here for as long as you need me. Okay, sure. Let's see. Let's go with that then and see. And if you get too tired to continue or anything, then there is <laughs> a lot. Tired. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you need to use judgment and see what's going to be appealing. You don't want to go for like three hours if it's um, droning on and on. You know what I mean? Yeah, no problem. And uh, I'll do my little introduction here, Stephen. I'll just tell the people a little bit of the chef. So um, Stephen Jonathan Rumsberg is a Catholic convert after 40 years of secular humanism. He holds a degree in history from the University of California, Santa Barbara in the USA. He's a school teacher. He's also a writer and a speaker in matters of faith, culture and education. His writings can be found at the Integrated Catholic Life, the Imaginative Conservative and at several other places. And uh, we were just speaking beforehand, and we mentioned that he's already had fantastic conversations with people like Matt Frad. So alongside this video, I hope you'll check out those. Just then to begin, Stephen, can you tell us a little bit about your background and some of the key currents in your life that helped to really form your character and that took you ultimately to Christ and his church then? Sure. Yeah, I was born and raised in California, and I was raised in a secular humanist family. So we were, were basically materialists who just believed in science. And we actually, in the home growing up, mocked religion, mocked people who were religious. My, my mom and dad would say, uh, people who need a crutch are religious. And their, their shining example for us was, imagine somebody who believes that a little old man is sitting on a cloud and that that little old man is God. So it's kind of a good materialist argument to say, yeah, there is no little old man sitting on the cloud. Therefore, God doesn't exist. And um, ironically, though, we went to this kind of church, the United Church of Christ, and it it wasn't, it wasn't very religious. My parents weren't religious there, but they took us so that we would have an opportunity to be exposed to religion. But it was a really secular religion. And it was a nice thing because they did social works. They helped indoors families and things like that. So my parents were always charitable, always kind, always really nice, uh, nice, good souls. But we just didn't have religion or philosophy in our lives. We had secular humanism. Um, so growing up is a pretty vacuous life. You know, I started school, started kindergarten. It was just uh, immediately perceived soul death in my kindergarten class. And then all through university, I did my best to avoid the things that the schools wanted me to do, which I thought, I think is a good idea from hindsight, but at the time it seemed like kind of a bad idea, but it was definitely more enjoyable than participating in whatever they were doing in the schools. So eventually as irony would have it, I became a school teacher my first year out of college, just a substitute teacher. And in that classroom, the totality of my experience in, in school, which was abysmal, 
came crashing down as I looked at these little kids sitting in front of me. And I said, wow, these guys are in third grade and they're as bored as I was my whole life. And that set me off on a quest to discover what's so wrong with modern education. So this was about 32 years ago that I began this quest. And uh, that quest, after about 15 years of searching what was wrong with modern education, led me to the ancient Greek myths, the ancient uh, fairy tales, the Greek philosophers, the Roman philosophers, and eventually, to my great disappointment, to the church doctors. And um, I was raised to be pretty anti-religious. And if I was anti-anything the most, it was anti-Catholic. So when I encountered guys like St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, I um, actually had a mentor, Louis Marcos, who's been on your show. He, uh, as a secular humanist, when I was a secular humanist, he took me under his wing and he introduced me to Pope Benedict XVI, St. John Paul II, and many other great writers uh, in the classic canon. And that really opened my eyes. And so finally, in around 2006, when we were kind of looking for a church the way my parents took us to church, I met a beautiful woman named Meredith who was running the RCIA at our local Catholic church. And she, she suggested I come to a Catholic mass. And I said, it'll be a cold day in hell when I set foot in a Catholic church. Uh, and and I, I meant it at the time. There must have been some kind of cold front in hell because a year <laughs> later, we went to a mass and I was horrified by how beautiful it was. And I was even more horrified that I thought I would go back. I would go back to the mass. And my wife, uh, my wife, Faith, she was a cradle Catholic who left the church as a teenager for, for all the secular humanist reasons. People leave the church. Uh, but she was yearning to come back, too. So we together joined the RCIA, RCIA in about 2007. And in 2008, we both came. She came back to the church and I came into the church in May 25th, 2008. So it was such a glorious homecoming and such a long story that I, I I shouldn't drag it out too long, but it's such a glory to be in Holy Mother Church. Amen. Yeah, thanks for sharing, Stephen. And then I suppose um, moving on from that and with what you have told us, uh, considering that and this kind of discussed towards people like Augustine even, how did you then move and what sort of prompted your interest in matters of theology specifically, for example, and then classical education in contrast to a kind of modern model of education that you just mentioned, and uh, suppose some of those central concerns that we see in your work? Yeah, that's a huge question. So my own formation was so vacuous and so materialistic, and I wasn't even a good materialist. So I was a terrible student, according to the modern school, which, which is fine. But what really captivated me was the life of the mind. When I discovered what the word philosophy means, I was just dumbfounded. I was in my late 20s. And this, this idea of loving wisdom and not knowing what love is and not knowing what wisdom is, like most people today, it makes it sort of a vacuous word. And it's been so abused right now. We say things like, what's your philosophy on football? What's your philosophy of Frisbee throwing? You know, and, and that's just an abusive speech. So when I, when I discovered what philosophy, the word itself meant, and the fact that truth can actually be known uh, and discovered by the human intellect, and even what the human intellect was, there was this huge process of dominoes falling, where I went from materialistic, rationalizing skepticism, solipsism, self-reference, to saying, wow, there's an objective truth. I'm not conformed to it, and I want to be. 
So I began to study philosophy and I started with Plato. And that was a really wonderful place to start. I had a little seventh grader who's, who's, who's my godson now, Anthony Martinez. He was in seventh grade and I was hired to be a Spanish tutor and I was gonna teach him Spanish. And we didn't do any Spanish because he taught me about the allegory of the cave and I'd never heard of it before. So this little seventh grader teaches me about the allegory and we spent all our time together talking about philosophy. And so it was a total, total uh, ripoff for the family that hired me, but really wonderful to get me started in, in philosophy. So, so, so thank you, Anthony, my godson, and, and his dad, Fidel, is one of my best friends ever. But that's how I got into philosophy. So it was through the life of the mind that I discovered, of course, once you discover objective truth, you can discover the objective good which leads to all those questions about ethics, practical morality. And those things lead you into understanding the nature, the fullness of the soul, and then the soul's responsibility to the virtues like justice, the social virtue that says, give to the other what is due to them. And if you're going to give to the other what is due to them, you have to know what they are, what they're worth, and eventually discover how you ought to comport yourself such that you're acting with virtue rather than self-interest. So this, this, it was an enormous, I mean, I, I literally couldn't write it down because every second of every day mattered, but all, you know, the scales fall from your eyes, the, the, you participate in God through the life of the mind, and then eventually theology becomes the next thing you have to confront after you take up the life of the mind, unless the order is reversed by God when he reveals truth to you, and then theology could lead into the life of philosophy. So there's sort of one and the same mm. in reality. So that, that's how I came to theology. Thank you, Stephen. And um, I know that story is almost the direct opposite of what's happened for many people as they talk about this in America in particular. They seem to talk about this kind of notion of deconstructing. Really yeah. seems like they want to embrace many of the kind of secular shibboleths, but then sort of pretend that it's some sort of a, a drama that they're the main character of. It's, that's what it seems to me. I could be wrong. But uh, I find that interesting, whereas... You're being used by God for these wonderful purposes. It's such a refreshing twist on that conversion story or deconversion story. So um, I know, well, God can do whatever he wishes. So he can bring people in that way. But I know in many cases, if we're fortunate, he will use some um, institutions that are run by wonderful Christians. So that's part of what I want to talk to you about for those people who maybe aren't brought up with those gifts that they can come to Christ to come to the church and preserve the institution so that they can access the truth as it's been preserved through the generations. So I want to talk about education a bit more, if we may, and yes. uh, more of our, your correspondence with people like Matt Frado we spoke about. And I'd like to really speak of the, about the way you indict modern education because in part because of its ground in naturalism that you mentioned and um, what you, I wonder what you'd like to assert then for an authentic classical Christian education that's supernatural in its orientation, but it's qualitatively um, different as well as quantitatively. I'd love to ask a little bit about that. And um, can you tell us what that really means, I suppose, in theory and in practice? Yes. That was a three-hour question. That's the rest <laughs> of our time together, right? <laughs> we should take that one by one. And yeah. one thing you made me think of, and let me go back to the beginning. It's very true that it's rare that people come to God through the life of the mind. One of the reasons I think, I just suspect this, is that people with really high IQs that are, are highly educated 
have a much more difficult time getting to God through the life of the mind than somebody like me who was just utterly devoid of an academic or intellectual life. I think it was much easier for God to work with me through the life of the mind. And I think I'm the poster child for God using his weakest. If you, if you look at my, if you look at my past record, it's sad, but in high school, I graduated second from the bottom of my class and and barely because my GPA was a 1.9 and you were supposed to have a 2.0 and something similar happened to me in college where I had to be there a couple, a couple extra quarters to bring my GPA up to a 2.0 to graduate. I just wasn't, a student at all, which I think to me was an advantage when God said, okay, I could work with this guy because high intelligence sometimes makes it really difficult for people to to get out of self-reference and to say there is a truth outside of myself that I want to discover. Instead, we're convinced we should can, we should invent our own truths or invent our own reality. And I think that's a really big problem today. And one of the foundational problems, even in education and especially in academia, I don't know how many professors you've talked to, but it, it's a terrifying thing to talk to too many professors about the life of the mind. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to, to say that, to, to, to get through the life of the mind to God probably isn't the normal way it happens. So very, very true. Now, beyond that, we should go through each one of those things you mentioned point by point. Um, as I said earlier, when I first started teaching, I knew education was, was a mess because It was just horrendous for me throughout my academic career. But then watching these kids, I coined a term my first year teaching. I looked at these beautiful children and they were in what I would call an an educational coma. I mean, comatose is a great word to describe how you see children in third grade and beyond usually. Sometimes it's even before that. But ask parents these days, they'll say, by third grade, my kid was so burnt out with school. And, And we ought to ask, well, why was that? You know, they're not just bored, they're literally burnt out because the modern school is what I call anti-human. It's inhumane because the kinds of activities they do in the school aren't suited for human education. And that's a, that's a huge indictment. So we might want to ask, well, what does that mean? Is that your question? Yes, that's right. <laughs> what does that mean? It means because of, uh, well, you have to go back to the beginning. You have to go back to the Garden of Eden where you say, we're fallen human beings because of the disobedience of our first parents. And that fall has three dramatic artifacts, three really important things to consider. First of all, the intellect is darkened, as St. Paul says. Second of all, the will to do good is weakened. And third of all, our appetites are disordered. So we have to begin there if we're gonna discover an authentic education. Fast forward millennia, the modern school begins in a diametrically posed position. They say, you're good just the way you are. You're perfect just the way you are. So look at that foundational premise. The the modern school that's, that's materialistic and secular humanist says man is not fallen. (laughs) So right there, you're in big trouble. If you believe man's not fallen, you're perfect just the way you are. Why do you go to school in the first place? And that's really the notion. But they have an answer. They have an implied answer that's not terribly public. The public school says, well, you come to school so that you become, can become good citizens. Now, the authentic school says the same thing. You go to school because so you can become a good citizen in the city of God. 
which implies you're going to be a good family member, that your concern is about cultivating virtue for the sake of the common good, and that in your domestic church, that you grow to be an excellent participant in the, in the true church, which is the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. Now, the, you know, the modern school says you're going to be an excellent citizen in the city of man, which means the end for you is to get a good job, make a lot of money, and have as much material contentment as you can get. Now, those two, those two citizenships are diametrically opposed to one another. And the best illustration of this distinction is given by St. Augustine in the City of God. And he says this, there are two loves. And from these two loves come two cities. There's the City of God and the City of Man. The love in the City of God is that man loves God to the contempt of his fallen self which means he seeks after truth over his own opinion. In the city of man, man loves himself to the contempt of God. And this characterizes the difference between the modern school, which teaches you to love yourself over truth, and the authentic school, which teaches you to love truth over yourself. Mm. I think too, yeah. Stephen, um unfortunately alongside the points that you make there which are, i think are true and excellent there's even it gets even worse i think in the sense that i spoke with the uh, catherine burble's thing about this a little bit and the modern school taking its cue for, uh, from people like jean-jacques rousseau and their notion in line with what you're saying about a uh, man is born free but everywhere in chains so it's not only that they're intrinsically good but it's also that the institutions and the structures out there are also evil and must be overturned. So right. things like you mentioned, like the family and things like that are seen under the expressive individualist philosophy as problematic and something to be overthrown. And we see this, I think, even in modern secularist kind of schools, this contempt for authority. I've taught in secular schools myself, and you can see a real difference in the practical implications of these contrasting the philosophies or even theologies, I would argue in some cases. And um, I don't know if you want to speak to that or um, yes. also is important because in line with your work, there's two, uh, I suppose if someone misread what you're saying, they may think that there's, okay, there's the religious in so, one corner, this kind of secularist myth of a privatized religion, and then you have the public. Whereas what you're showing, I think that an authentic education frames or science or art, nature and things like that, so that it's all the city of God. It's not a, a privatized little construct of secularism. Would you like to speak to maybe some of those points? Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of points. Um, and I do want to speak to them all because they're so, so important to understand because you really do have this. So in the authentic religion, we have sciences. In the, in the modern, you also have scientists, but here's how it works. It's true that theology is the womb of the authentic education because you ask the question, how are we here? Why are we here? What are we? How do we get here? And one answer is, well, the creator made us, made the universe. And theology and knowing God would be a way to transcend to the deepest levels of the human experience to know what reality is. And so we have the science of theology that's the womb. We've discovered human selection, which is philosophy, which is the handmaid of philosophy, of theology. And then we have the liberal arts and the material sciences, which serve philosophy, which serves theology. And this is the scheme of the authentic education, which is religious. Now go to the modern secular 
secular school, which claims it's not religious, that's just simply not true. It's because we don't know what religion means. But they have the sciences too, except they take the material sciences, the material world, and they make that the womb. They have intellection, which goes from being reduced from philosophy to rationalization. And it does support the materialism. And then you have personal religion at the center, which is your own private beliefs and subjectivism. So they both have the same model. It's just the exact inverted order. It's, it's, it's stunning. And it is religious. There's no doubt about that. A secular humanist will fervently cling to their ideology, usually more fervently than a Christian will cling to God. It's just the way it is. So, But you're absolutely right. The secular humanist will take their method of reductionism and material reductionism and claim that the authentic education is some such structure, but it's not. The difference here is that in the authentic education, we discover the truth. In the modern secular humanists, they construct while they deconstruct everything else. It's just really interesting. So the two cities really can't even communicate. Mm. They really can't even communicate because they use the same words that mean very, very different things. So that's, that's nearly impossible. But you brought up Jean-Jacques Rousseau, which is an excellent place to find one of, one of the deep roots of modern errors in education. The idea that the noble savage, that institutions and cities ruin man, and the best that man can be, be is to be left alone in nature to, to become his own. And that, that's the exact rejection of the fall that I was talking about. That's the root of that. Um, but if you go before that a few centuries, you discover a guy named Roskilen who instituted a, a sort of a major nominalism where man became to, came to think at the end of the scholastic period that although we can think categories, know things in our minds, we can only name them and we can't really know if what is in our mind corresponds to reality. This was the ground floor to Jean-Jacques Rousseau to disconnect from so many other principles of truth. And then John Dewey a century or so later you can look at him and see, I, I see John Dewey as the clearinghouse for all modern errors concerning education, where he instituted kind of a peer materialism as an experimental psychologist and really, really instituted the pathway to become animal behaviorism in the modern school. And uh, for Dewey, the end of the school was social concerns and using schools to solve social problems. That's not the end of the authentic school. So there's a, there's a long line of his historical and philosophical problems that led up to the modern school. And it starts in the garden, goes through nominalism, up through Rousseau, utilitarianism, all the materialism of the enlightenment, and up through the modern age of materialism, radical subjectivism, skepticism, and all the other isms that, that have made this age probably the worst age in history for education. Mm, excellent. Thanks, Stephen. So um, I want to ask you next, if I may, a little bit about, so you mentioned nominalism there, which um, unfortunately not too many people know about, but I think it's the most important point. And I remember reading a book years ago, Ideas Have Consequences, where uh, he held that that was one of the key things that went wrong with you. And I think on the internet now, some people are starting to refer to this, like Jonathan Pajot, who's built up quite a following. So he and I have uh, conversations quite regularly, thank God. And um, I think he's most important in battling this kind of nominalism and the way he describes the symbolic world is helping people come back from secularism 
to even the church, so the Orthodox Church, Catholic churches, and so on. So I want to draw that contrast because he and I have spoken a little bit about, say, figures like St. Maximus, the confessor, and how the in the Orthodox tradition, you have the Logos and the Logoi, that you can know God through the creation in these ways. And it's very earthy, and it's it's a cosmic vision. And I think that's true of the Catholic Church also. And um, I'd love to speak to that and maybe how we as Christians contrast in our understanding of the nature of reality with those kind of um, nominalist and modern secularists, I suppose. Yes, that's a, that's a really, really important point. And what happens is nominalism really interferes with what we call the perennial philosophy. Perennial philosophy is grounded in Aristotelian thought. It was advanced in Thomism, and it's really beautiful and important. And what one of the major principles we have in that is an understanding of the four causes when we discuss nature and what a thing is. And you have the material cause, the efficient cause, the formal cause, and the final cause. And if you're not sure what those means, you're not alone. Even modern day uh, philosophers that talk about those four things if you talk about those in the city of God or city of man, they mean completely different things than they would in the city of God or the city of truth. So material cause has to do with what a thing's made of. That's, a, that's already an oversimplification. The efficient cause has to do with what made the thing. Um, so, so for example, if you have a table, the material cause of a wooden table is wood. The efficient cause would be the carpenter who made the table. The formal cause is the essence, nature, or idea of the thing. Uh, the Greek word for form is ideos. It's related to idea. So the conception of the table in the mind of the, uh, of the carpenter is a kind of formal cause unrealized for the table. The form itself is its tableness, its essence. And finally, the final cause of anything is its natural purpose its end or its telos. So if we understand these four causes as, as the essential explanatory factors of a thing in nature, which is a good idea, by the way, then we will learn that with nominalism, that to name things, but to not know what they really are, affects two of those causes profoundly. And that's the final cause, the purpose of the thing, and the formal cause, the essence or the nature of what a thing really is. So nominalism is a rejection of formal and final causality. And that is an enormous problem that, that sets us up to say something like, well, if there is no purpose and there are no forms, that means anything is what I want it to be and we can't really know what they are. So it's also the ground floor for modern skepticism, which has turned into radical skepticism, which is now hyper-skepticism. Mm. So it's really, really important to try to recover that. And it's an impossible conversation in the city of man. Mm. Thanks, Stephen. And um, so figures I mentioned there, like Jonathan Pajot, I think are most helpful in re returning people to the, that more layered understanding of reality. Even Jordan Peterson, who interestingly enough, I think tries to do a true uh, Jungian and Darwinian framework, but I think based on what we just said, that's limit, ultimately very limited. And uh, he's trying to break through, but I, I don't think he has the conception that you're talking about. We'd maybe like to speak to figures like that, and I suppose how what we're describing, even if we're theistic evolution, even evolutionists, or whether we're in favorable intelligent design or whatever, maybe some of the ways that contrasts with 
say, a Darwinian philosophical naturalism and some of the ramifications of that then? Sure, sure. I love Jordan Peterson because uh, he's such an amazing communicator and he's a brave, courageous soul who stood up against the tyranny of modern ideology. So God bless him for that. I've always remarked, though, wow, the guy has these great conclusions uh, <laughs> and he doesn't really have a great way that he got there. So I'm wondering, I think he just has a really wonderful common sense. Common sense is a thing that's almost non-existent today. And this is interesting. Ideologues that hold the Darwinistic naturalistic theories, but then discover truths, don't realize they find themselves in a little bit of a contradictory uh, scheme of thinking. And I think Jordan Peterson is one of these, these guys who has such good common sense and doesn't realize that the evidence he claims leads to his conclusions really doesn't lead to his conclusions. Um, uh, you know, maybe he's going to join the church and, uh, and, and get deeper into philosophy and rectify those mistakes. But I think we, we, have, a, we have lost final and formal causality, just like we've lost common sense, which in the interior life is a thing like the unitive sense, where we can by natural intuition, know what things are and discover what they are and know, for example, what's right and wrong. What most people don't realize is that we are, we are born with the capacity to know that things are true, to know that things are right and wrong, even to know that things are beautiful or ugly. We're, we're born with this intuitionally. And the common sense is that faculty. Philosophy is the formal systematic study of perfecting common sense. So even the most deformed ideologue has a purchase on reality through the common sense, whether they know it or not. And I think Jordan Peterson's coming along and he's going to probably end up being in the church and, and getting everything right. And he's, he's a great, he's a great evangelizer anyway, because of those common conclusions. I don't know uh, the other guy you mentioned. I've seen him and I think he's wonderful. He, but he's, is he, he's not a naturalistic Darwinist, is he? No, he's not. No, no I didn't think so. Um, uh, right. But there are, there are many that, that hold these things and then still have common sense. For example, if you ask somebody, is it right or wrong to uh, murder an innocent person, even a naturalist will normally say no. And then when you say why, they'll probably say, because I don't want to be murdered. <laughs> you know, maybe uh, yeah. they won't have the good reasons, but they'll know that it's wrong. Is it right to steal stuff outside of California? It's not right to steal stuff. <laughs> right? It's just not. And even people in California, a lot of them believe it's still not right to steal stuff, right? It's not right to take what's not yours. How do we know this? Yeah, I think um, we're seeing that now as postmodernism start, uh, started to disintegrate. And I think maybe the models of critical theory came in and we have this kind of moral absolutism with the woke people now, uh, kind of in line with what you were describing previously about our religious nature that they crave that kind of moral clarity and even certainty but uh, the structures wouldn't allow for it so they're trying to have it both ways yes yeah <laughs> so extreme hypocrisy and double standards with the woke religion i'll tell you it's it's a form of insanity hmm. being woke and these the critical the critical theories it's 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 such a such a mess and it's so easy to to grab a hold of them because I think they do play on some of those natural intuitions about justice. They'll say something like, this is not right. We need to correct that. And there, there, there's grains of truth in that. And that's the difficult thing is it's hard to separate what's true about the justice in the woke movement and the insanity of these fanatics. It's really incredible. Mm, I think too, um, 
Augusto Del Nache describes it wonderfully. He shows how within the Marxist kind of structure, uh, the, the understanding of Christi, Judeo-Christian understanding of justice is kind of perverted, and then you become these kind of just avatars for your groups. And but if you're yeah. well to one particular group, they're the problematic because it's based in, the, I suppose, you know better than I would, but this notion of cultural hegemony for people like Gramsci, yeah. and if, if you're white Christian, you're the, automatically the bad guy according to that structure. And um, you, there is no logos, there's no truth that we're, in the way that we're describing it, that we can't come and reason together from across differences. We are kind of determined by our um, group identities. And I think in line with um, what Jordan Peterson's describing in his critiques of these kind of same people, postmodern, you know, Marxists, he likes to phrase it. But I think there is something, even though it's often denied in academia, there is something real there to be fought against and it is problematic from a Christian perspective. It's problematic from a human perspective. Yeah. If, you, if you look at Marx's hegemony, it's the oppressor-oppressed dichotomy that's so entrenched in wokeism today. It's really interesting too, because there's this big pushback on what they're calling critical race theory. And critical race theory probably isn't the correct term for what's going on in the schools, but believe me, Marxist, communist, materialistic, oppressor, oppressed dichotomy is in full force in all the public schools, just about. And I can tell you in the 90s when I was in teacher training, which was just abysmal beyond belief, we had a, a course called multiculturalism. And this is just CRT stuff. And literally they say, our aim in multiculturalism is to show that all cultures are equally valid, equally valuable, and that we need to destroy white hegemony. Mm -hmm. That's almost a quote. We need to destroy white hegemony. So out of the Marxist oppress-oppressed dichotomy in the structure, the structuralism that it is attended to it, we get identity politics. And identity politics is one of these woke issues that is extremely double standard. For an example, with uh, the BLM movement, it's they, it's, they, uh, they insist on collective guilt for all white people, but it's a, it's a double standard. There, there's no collective guilt for any other group. Mm -hmm. In fact, the supposition is that all other groups are innocent, white people are guilty, and it's that stark, and this is being taught in the public schools since, since I started teaching in the 90s, if, and probably long before that. I mean, it was, it's, it's just crept up and grown to the point where it's perfectly acceptable to say, if you're white, you're a racist. And I'm saying that because my wife and I just did a, I did a um, administrating administrative credentialing program, and they said that to us. <laughs> be prepared to be uncomfortable. If you're white, you're a racist. And my wife, who is not white, objected, and they called her a racist. <laughs> and the, the reason she's a racist is because she aligns with the oppressor, mm. according to these people. And I'm, I'm quoting from the educational leadership training programs in the United States of America. And it's it's evil, actually. It's an evil. And it's not an evil they're prepared to, to turn on themselves. So is it okay that we say all people of color are evil? No, it's, it, well, first it's not true. And second of all, it would be, be uh, it'd be evil to say that, so. Mm. Absolutely. And uh, I think it, uh, it repeats the same problems, obviously, by, making this social construct of race central 
it, uh, it perpetuates and you can see this in the the new desire to segregate except in reverse whereas from my perspective i think the christian call is the martin luther king colorblind approach not that you don't see color but you see beyond color and sure. race is either abolished or put way into the margins where it's not central, whereas we judge people by the nature of our character rather than the color of our skin and so forth. But um, I think it's doubly, triply, uh, maybe ridiculous from an, in places like Ireland, if you know the history of Ireland, especially Northern Ireland, where um, so-called white people like uh, Northern Catholics didn't have civil rights until the early 70s and things like that, and were influenced by figures like Dr. Martin Luther King. So the unionist class had a real hegemony. And uh, now you see, just the other day, this is why I'm bringing it up in part, because a lady, a unionist lady, um, she said, it's, oh, it's good to see politics no longer pale, stale, and male, which I just thought was, wow. This, this woman literally came from the generation that repressed in very real, legal, like illegal ways at the time, uh, nationalist catholic people her parents her, her in her youth and so on and she has rewritten history to, along color lines because this has come from the yeah. academia it's such a fascinating thing and people don't realize that this is a kind of quasi-religion and uh, Peugeot talked about it too in a very interesting manner that most people um might understand he talked about the nature of human sacrifice which if, if you hear it it sounds strange but then he went into the example of during covid whenever no protest no, uh, no meetings were allowed yet all of a sudden uh, we could sacrifice the old people for the black lives matter protests then it shows in very real terms what people's ultimate uh, sense of worth is like bishop Byron talks about this worship as that which we give ultimate worth to and how do we know that it's by their fruits you shall know them as christ says so it's it's fascinating to me um but i suppose if we might take it in uh, another direction then i want to ask you a little bit Stephen. Can, can i interrupt you can I interrupt you for one point that's really important on everything you just said okay james Lindsay. james Lindsay. i can't I critical critical cynical race theories really important to read he really explains how identity is an accidental feature. It's a materialistic feature of existence. He says, we've taken something accidental and material and we've made it essential. Mm -hmm. We've turned it from something that's passive into something that's determinative and that's false. So he says, when an identity that's based on an accident of birth that's material is, is, is asserted as an essential quality, then you got a big problem. So I just wanted to say that before you move on, because I know you had a great point. I'm sorry to interrupt, but read James Lindsay's Cynical Race Theories. It's very good. Yeah, it's very thanks, good. No, I would agree. Yeah, Lindsay is very good. He had a, a conversation with Peugeot recently, which is worthwhile. So um, I wanted to really touch upon the nature of the human person in contrast to the older materialism that we described, even with Rousseau and people like that, and then how that is maybe intensified in some ways in the new woke ideology and their conception of the human being is purely malleable. And we see this in trans ideology, eh, whether that's to do with transgenderism or whether that's to do with transhumanism even and the contrast which um the judeo-christian particularly the christian conception offers us about the nature of the human person our ultimate worth and so forth that's right super important question and you have to begin by asking what does the word nature mean and nature in a city of man is 
really different than the city of God. So in the city of God, in the perennial philosophy, the word nature is something about the formal causality or the essence of a thing or the potential playing field of possible activities or a better way to put it that, that probably is unheard of in this age is nature is a principle of motion and rest, which is the same to say is that, that playing field of possible activities for a certain kind of being. So human nature would not be a materialistically reduced notion. It would be all about the essence of man, the powers of man, the soul of man, the form and the essence, and even the end of man, because those possible activities have natural ends, a natural telos. Now go to the city of man. In the city of man, nature necessarily is materially reduced. So you see people talking about nature as if it's mother nature, the trees and the forest. And with that conception, the human person is simply a body, a body with a brain. And that brain decides and determines what the body can and cannot be rather than discovering the, the, the possible playing field of activities and discovering that there are things we really ought not to do because they damage our ends or they're unnatural. So first of all, we have to say this, there's a great difference between two notions of nature, city of man, city of God. Once we get that, and then we ask, well, what is the nature of man? Somebody like John Dewey would say, it is man's nature that he has no nature, <laughs> which means he's malleable. We can do whatever we want with him. We can turn him into a cog in the economic machine of society. And that's kind of where we're at. In, in the perennial philosophy, we, uh, we might answer the question, what is man's nature by discovering what is man's soul? What's the relationship between the soul and the body? And we might say man is a body, obviously. And we might say, well, there's also immaterial aspects of man. He thinks, he loves, he, he appreciates. He, we do lots of things that are immaterial. And you see in the city of man, they've taken those immaterial activities and attributed them to brain chemistry or to muscle twitches or whatever, whatever else. In fact, in the modern man, man has no real intellect and no free will. Man is determined by genetics and environment. This, this makes discussing nature in the city of man pretty scary. It makes it into um, a kind of a political ideology that's, that's uh, fascistic and controlling, and it's really scary. In the city of God, we know man has an intellect and a free will. These are, these are the two images of, of Christ on our souls, of God on our souls. The image of God on man is intellect and free will, freedom and uh, intellect. So right off the bat, that's where we have to start, okay? And so we ask this, in the city of man, where man is just a material being that's malleable, changeable, man can become whatever he wants, this is the ground floor for transhumanism and transgender and even LGBTQ and even identity politics. Man has no essence here. Therefore, your, your sexual attractions, your interior desires, your skin color, your ethnicity, your race, wherever you're born, these things become your identity, your essence. So it's a really terrible bait and switch. It's abusive of speech. It's abusive of humans. It's dehumanizing. It's actually an evil to reduce somebody to their identity, no matter what that is. Unless you're saying your identity is that you're made in the image and likeness of God. And therefore, you have an intrinsic value that's incalculable.
that's actually fair. That's mm. actually moral. That's that's good. So there's the difference right there with nature. And so, so I don't know, I didn't even know how to explain if you have the city of man, how is it that you formulate an educational program if man is a machine or man is just a material body to be used for the ends of the state? That's exactly what's happened. And that's why it's so ugly. And in the authentic school, they say, man is the image and likeness of God, intrinsically valuable beyond your wildest dreams, and by justice, what is due to the other, we want to help that soul cultivate the virtues through the liberal arts, such that the intellect is cultivated and that the free will is formed to moral action for the sake of the common good, for in the end, they may achieve the beatific vision. That's the, that's the authentic school. Yeah, man. <laughs> so I, I want to ask you a little more about the specifics next then, Stephen. Yes. So I'm wondering how and why does a proper Christian integrated holistic humanistic education require a grounding in some of the things uh, we mentioned in our email? So number one, if we might look at uh, Aristotelian physics, as you mentioned, and metaphysics, yes. uh, in contrast to that philosophical naturalism that we're critiquing, preceded in particular by things like the Argonon. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that and why that is so vital? Yeah, oh, well, this is where you see your major difference. Aristotle is a great ground floor to say when you have Aristotelian physics and metaphysics that's fulfilled in Thomist physics and metaphysics, and then you compare that to the physics and metaphysics of the modern school, that's really worth examining. Um, modern Thomistic physics and metaphysics is grounded in the understanding that it begins with prime matter, pure potential, upon which determinate form is imposed, and that all beings are composite Form and essence, uh, form and uh, form and matter. So, in the in the material world, in the city of man, it's all just material. There is no form; it's just matter. And that distinction alone changes everything. And that's the ground floor. When it gets into metaphysics, you can have a materially reduced metaphysics that says anything beyond is still materialistically determined like you say your genetics made you do the things you do that's that's a that's a point about modern materialist metaphysics where we would say the human soul with free will decided what to do that's a metaphysical question we ask why did you do that right what is it about your character that caused you to think that that you should aim for that type of activity so so the metaphysics is another another departure and another thing is first principles Aristotle says the first principle of all reality is the principle of non-contradiction. He says there are three forms of it, and I don't want to, I don't think we can go into all three, but basically a thing cannot be and not be a thing at the same time under the same conditions. That means if we have an orange, that orange cannot be an orange and then at the same time not be an orange. I know that sounds simple, but the modern school rejects that. The modern school rejects the principle of non-contradiction. And it's known to Aristotle to be the first principle of all reality. And in fact, Aristotle says, without adhering to that principle, you have no ground to argue that you're not a vegetable. And I think that's a really great point. The modern school says, no, a thing can be whatever you want it to be. And you can have your truth and I can have my truth. And even though they contradict, we can both be right. That's a conclusion of the modern metaphysics, the modern physics, and modern rejection of first principles. And that's where we are. 
And um, another thing which I really enjoy in your writings and in Jonathan Pajot and people like that, even Jordan Peterson we mentioned to an extent, is the emphasis on hierarchy. So traditional uh, societies throughout human history before our own will acknowledge the rightful hierarchy and the hierarchy of being itself. Would you like to describe that a little bit and why that's important? Super important. So yeah, hierarchy is a thing they reject because hierarchy requires a value judgment. You have to say something like, if I'm trying to be a faithful Catholic, then God is the highest thing. And then you have the angels and then you have the saints then you have your parents, and then you have you, then you have your enemies, and then you have the demons. That's a nice hierarchical order that really ought to make sense. But the modern school does something really, really bizarre. They invert the order, but lie about it. They, they literally lie about it. They say, everything is equal on a plane. And whatever you choose on that line is your choice. And that's, that's good to you. And it's ironic because you say, no, I disagree. There's a hierarchy. They say, no, you're wrong. They put their no order above your hierarchy in saying there's no hierarchy. So it's so confusing. I do this all the time in, in the schools. Whenever I go to a new class, I, I do a, a, a lesson on the principle of non-contradiction. And it always includes, you say everything is equal. And then when you disagree with them, they say everything's equal, except your opinion about the fact that everything's not equal. Right. It's just an absurdity that kids come to. Adults have a hard time with it. This is a terrible <laughs> thing to ask teachers because they get very upset about the fact that they're clueless about these things because we've been conditioned in the modern school. So that hierarchy is valuable. Here's what they really say. Self-reference is the highest thing. And then there's everything else in whatever order they put it. And I suspect that God's pretty down, down low at the bottom on the city of man hierarchy. And even where God is um, in the picture, it's based on our utilitarian conception where they, they just want to use God for their own good. And I think you see this even in little Instagram captions and on Twitter and so on. It's like, well, God first, but do you really need God first? Or are you just using God as a prop for your... <laughs> right. And it depends. And that makes me think of what you said earlier is that we talk about an authentic Christian education compared to a secular education. The bad news for us is that we've been conditioned in this for so long that most Christian schools, most Catholic schools are operating exactly like the modern city of man school. And we don't know it because we use things like the mass and we use things like God. We say things and we may not even know what we're saying, but these schools are not generally authentically faithful and and good. They're they're just, just about as bad as the public secular schools. So I wanted to bring that point up. And the other thing you brought up was authority. The authority, I love Peter Crave says, author's rights. The one who makes the thing has the right over defining what it is, right? An author of the book has rights over what the book intends to say. Um, And they have a huge problem with authority where when they're at the top, they're the authority to judge everything. And one of their big judgments is they say, you can't judge. And then they judge all the great authors. Um, I had an administrator say to me, why are you reading Homer's Odyssey to your kids? Why are you imposing that garbage on them? <laughs> you know, and I said, wow, okay. There's nothing to say to somebody who's that, that corrupted, right? Mm-hmm. Why would you read the Odyssey with a group of kids? It's like, because uh, it's one of the greatest works in the history of humankind. And it's amazing. And it, it's, it's just revealing. So mm. I was thinking about this a little bit recently then, um, Stephen. So even those... Uh, 
in, in line with what you're saying, even those who are well-intentioned may say that we should keep the great books for utilitarian purposes. So, well, they've been around for such a long time. Take this kind of quasi-Darwinian argument. Well, they've been around for such a long time because they have proved that they're adaptive and we should keep them and they'll help us to, um, to, to maybe flourish. But would you like to speak about why that is maybe insufficient and not, not enough? Yes. Yes. Oh, it's, oh, it's just, it's so loaded. So there are a lot of secular modern public schools that say, hey, we read the classics. And it's true. They read the classics, but not really. The wonderful thing is I think of screw tape letters when the demon screw tape says to us, says to Wormwood, he says, we have so dealt with, okay, no one reads the, the old books anymore, except for the learned. And we so dealt with the learned that they of all people can get nothing from them. So what's happened is that modern secular humanistic education has made nearly everybody illiterate. So it doesn't matter if you read the classics or not. You're not going to get from the classics what they were intended to deliver. Our patrimony to the classics is completely cut off by our deformation we all suffered in the public schools. So most school teachers are formally illiterate, and it doesn't matter what they read. How's that? Um, Stephen, I want to ask you next, if I may. So there's a kind of myth about uh, many classical schools that they are only about the humanities, as it were, but not really about STEM. And I don't know, maybe that is the case, unfortunately, in some places. But ultimately, the vision is integrated, should include a, the best of what we call modern science in line with the great tradition and um, I want to ask you a little bit about that and why it's important that we focus on all of those subjects and not just the humanities as they're kind of bracketed in that way. Right. No, I, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a, just an attack on classical education, but there's a real problem with STEM. Um, there's a lot in modern science that's important, but most of STEM is ideological material scientism. And, and there's a reason we ought to reject pretty much the entire STEM program. It's, it's like I said, if it is material scientism, we should reject it because that's just ideological. It's ideological. It's its own thing. But the authentic school is not just the humanities. It's the seven liberal arts, right? And the natural sciences. So the seven liberal arts are the trivium, which is grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And these are the humane letters in the arts concerning language. And then there's the quadrivium, which are the quantifiable arts, which is arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. And from those, we branch out into the natural sciences, which includes natural physics. It includes um, the work from Kepler, Galileo, all the great scientists in the history of the Western tradition. And even in other traditions, we should definitely embrace the discoveries made throughout the years in the natural sciences. But I don't think we should promote anything like STEM in, a, in an authentic classical school. So I, I think it's really important not to do that. But you're right. Many people get a bad rap and, and being said that they just focus on humanities, which is really a good place to start anyway. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to exclude modern mathematics from a classical school and say we begin with the Pythagorean divinity of number and roll through Euclidean geometry and discover the principles of mathematics as the deductive arts they were meant to be first before we barrel into algebra and calculus and the other the other kinds of maths. Um, I don't know if you know this, but modern math has veered into the woke stratosphere. And here in San Mateo, California, there's a framework 
that discusses how all modern math is, or all math is racist and white supremacist. <laughs> one, of their, one of their reasons is that white people expect right answers from their math. Therefore, it's oppressive and racist. And we stole it from the Babylonians who are good people of color. So it's, it's, we, it, there's no authentic school that can entertain that kind of idiocy, that kind of stupidity. I want to ask a little bit about um, what you just, in line with what you just described there. I think a lot of modern secularist schools get away with um, a lot of what they're offering and forcing on people, say, that with woke um, kind of <laughs> re-education camps <laughs> almost, yeah. where they say, well, we're really just offering mathematics and things like that. It's science. These are neutral. But based on what you just said, they're framed in these um, materialist frames, these ways of understanding the universe itself, the nature of humanity, and so on. I wonder then, in contrast to that, uh, what are some of the better examples that you have seen of integrating, say, even quantum physics and more recent discoveries hmm. within the classical Christian context and um, particular figures that we might go to and read to get the benefit? Yeah. That's a great point. I, I haven't seen a lot of that, but I can tell you this. If you look at the curriculum for Thomas Aquinas College, you can look this up online. You will see a beautiful integrated curriculum there. You, they will, they, and I do believe they deal with quantum mechanics, quantum physics, and all those important things. And there, there is a reason to study those things. Um, following your grounding in the principles of truth and the principles of natural science, Absolutely. It's fascinating what we can know with modern technology and modern science, but it's really important in my mind to divorce that from the STEM agenda and the, and the materialism and literally an atheistic agenda that is woven throughout the modern STEM program. So uh, you can look at schools like Wyoming Catholic College, Thomas More. You can look at UD, University of Dallas, um, Franciscan University of Steubenville, and just a few others. And that's, that's about all I know of where they have programs where they're trying to integrate the authentic natural sciences with advancements in science, as well as being grounded in a humane letters program. And mm -hmm. it doesn't get better than that because education ought to prepare us for the nature of reality, which is qualitative, quantitative, philosophical, theological, and grounded in the natural sciences. So we really need it all to be formed as fully human persons. And there are very few places where they're, they're doing that. But Thomas Aquinas College is one of them. Yeah, excellent. Thanks, Stephen. And uh, I want to ask you a little more about the specifics. So we mentioned previously in our correspondence the importance of things like having a grasp of motion, act, and potency, and some of those specifics versus uh, modern materialist conceptions that we spoke about. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why it's important? Yes, of course. When we talk about motion and rest and act and potency, these are, these are terms that are fully fleshed out in the authentic school. Uh, and they're fleshed out by an understanding of the four causes, that you have prime matter, determinant form, and that there's kinds of changes. There's accidental change, and there is substantial change. And these are two kinds of changes in, in physics and in reality and in nature that can only be understood in the fullness of these Aristotelian concepts. So you, you consider material, efficient, final, and formal causality 
in motion and rest because, or motion and act and potency, because when you take a natural body, you can recognize that it is potentially something. For example, a small boy is potentially a man, right? A grown man is potentially a grandfather. You see, you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And this movement moves towards its natural telos, its final end by a process of time, nutrition, and survival, and all these other aspects. In the modern school, they eliminate the final and formal causality to say that all change, they, they recognize that things change. They go through substantial changes, but they have a different definition of substance. Substance for them is completely material. Substance for us, substantial form for us, would be like the soul. So there's an enormous difference there. So they reduce all change, all act and potency to materialistic concerns that eliminates formal final causes and only considers efficient and material causes. So it's called, um, what's that? It's called, oh, I can't remember. I can't remember what it's called, but it's called um, a kind of determinism. I'm sorry, I can't draw it to my mind, but there's a kind of change just by efficient and material cause that's radically different than the four causes understanding act and potency. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So, so these guys, yeah. In the modern school, they'd say, I think it can be whatever it wants to be. I say, that's an acorn. It's going to be an oak tree. They say, how do you know? It might end up being an apple tree. And, and we say, well, it's an acorn. It's going to be an oak tree. And you, you just can't get anywhere with that, right? And, and then you have a boy. It's like, that boy's going to become a man. And the modern school says, no, that might be a woman. Or it might be a leopard or a cat or a camel. And you're like, who are you to judge is the answer. And it's like, well, in the history of humankind, a young boy has the potential to become a man. And I think um, that's actually a, a good point to move on to what I wanted to discuss next, which was epistemology, which you have said is vital. And um, based on our current uh, secularist metaphysics, we think we can know something by a sheer act of will. I know that I'm a woman really on the inside and it's right. up to me. I'm the ultimate arbiter of truth. And the, the theory of epistemology in those forms is so obviously ridiculous that people can easily critique it. But I think they fail to go behind that to the, the nominalists that we were talking about previously. People like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, Rene Descartes even, and the kind of, troubled nature of their epistemologies. Would you like to describe the classical Christian epistemology and how that's different from those? Yeah, you know, and really maybe the departure on this, this point of epistemology for us in the modern world could be, could be um, um, Rene Descartes and his cogito ergo sum, his I think, therefore I am. And uh, that's the one thing he knows. And I don't think he intended this at all, but, but the modern interpretation of I think therefore I am is the inversion of being and doing. So if in the modern, in the modern mindset in the city of man, they say, oh, if I think, therefore I am, then it was my thinking that made me what I am, which makes you the creator. I, I think Descartes would object to that, that interpretation. And I don't think he'd appreciate that. But I think that's where we are. Like you said, we first you have to have subjectivism in the city of man as opposed to uh, recognizing that there's an objective reality and our subjective participation in it. Um, the, the authentic school isn't objectivist. It's 
recognizing that objective reality exists and that our subjective experience is a participation in that. Whereas the modern school says it's purely subjective. And I don't even know if there's a world that I'm experiencing. All I know is I'm here and I think, therefore I exist and I probably made you too. It's truly the implied conclusion of the modern school is that they've made their own reality. We have all these ridiculous programs. You're like, just actualize it, see it in your mind and make it happen. You know, and you ignore 99.9% of all the other realities to say, I made that happen, right? It's just, it's really embarrassing. So back to epistemology. The question in epistemology is, how is it that I know what I know? And in the authentic school, we begin with first principles. We begin with what Augustine said. Augustine says, I believe it in order that I may come to understand. There's this epistemological openness to the nature of reality and the nature of being and a confidence in our five senses to take in with an infallible capacity to take in phantasms. Barring defect, we should be able with our five senses to perceive reality as it is. And then in doing so, we, we have this amazing gift of, of intellection where we can abstract from material experiences, forms, essences, and ends, and, and populate the human soul with concepts. So in a real sense, the knower becomes the known in every way except for the material in, in an authentic epistemology. Um, this is utterly rejected in the modern school that begins with disbelief, not belief. They say, I don't believe it. I need to see it to believe it. And then they have experiences and through the inductive method of taking their experiences and drawing general conclusions, that becomes their epistemology. Where, as I said, we start with principles of truth and we do deduce from those principles specific instances of truth. So uh, we, we believe it. Um, human testimony is a credible source of knowledge if the, the human source is, is credible. In in the modern world, really bizarrely, they say nothing is credible. And yet they believe the person who told them that nothing's credible. So it's, it's just a hyper kind of skepticism that exists in this modern epistemology. And you can see that if you ad adhere to subjectivism and radical skepticism, then everything you think becomes the truth for you. And that's perfectly acceptable today. That's why we have such a difficult time even having a conversation about education is because the vast majority of people in education are those radical skeptics who, who doubt everything except for their own experience. So experience is elevated to the highest thing. And the authentic school, experience is not the highest thing. Revealed truth is. God reveals the truth. There's principles we can discover. Our experience corroborates the truth. It doesn't institute it. So that's the vast difference between the epistemology of the two camps more or less. And it needs a lot more than that. Maybe hundreds of days of discussion on this. Yeah, absolutely. That might've been a rude reduction. Sorry. No, I appreciate that you're having to distill so many complex uh, intertwined issues into a short period of time and hope people can understand that. And yeah. um, I know you do have a, 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 we spoke previously, you hope to release a book at some stage about some of these topics. So I, I would encourage people to keep an eye out for that whenever it yes. And um, next I want to ask you. Mark, like, Mark, I think you wrote the outline for my book. So thank you. Wow. <laughs> what you sent me is my outline. So I'm working on it. Wow. <laughs> 
Glory to God. Thanks, Stephen. And um, I want to ask you next a little bit about ethics, then taking off from epistemology and maybe how they're related and this Christian classical understanding of ethics, because the way it's structured, and Dylan actually talks about this too, is it's framed that we are the retrogrades. It's built into the, the modern language, but progressive versus us uh, old-fashioned types with our like Iron Age mythology and all this kind of stuff. And um, there's a sense of we are morally superior to, to Christians, like secularists would assume they're morally superior. Oftentimes, what people is the extreme version of this. And then we have uh, C.S. Lewis's chronological snobbery, whereas Homer, all those figures before us, they were just idiots and moral, like more reprobates, even Aristotle, well, they had slaves and so on. So none of what they say says really matters. And we're just so much better. We're enlightened people. Would you like to speak to that and the importance of ethics in the classical Christian conception? Yeah, really, really important here. I mean, I, you, you brought to mind pale, stale, and male. Yeah, these old guys don't know anything. That's hilarious. I've never heard that before. So that was good. Um, but yeah, ethics is practical morality. And the, the key, I think the key to discovering what ethics properly is, is that we have to say, we have to, we have to define the word law. We have to ask the question, well, there's a law, a natural law or a man-made law. There are different kinds of law. And so we have to define law. And I believe that we can use Thomas for this. Thomas says a law is a dictative reason promulgated by a proper authority for the sake of the common good. That, that's what we call a law. And this, and this could be a, a conventional law or it could be a natural law. But as Catholics, as Orthodox or Catholics, we understand that there are at least four kinds of laws. There's the eternal law, the permanent law that is God. There's the divine law, which is Jesus Christ, the revealed, the, the logos. And then there's the natural law. And that's the law written on our hearts and the script by which we participate with the logos to adhere to the law. And then there's a fourth kind of law, conventional law. And this is real. Conventional law is man-made law. So we, there, the man-made law, it, it's essential in politics. But the man-made laws are a guide to ethics in a society, and all man-made laws are good laws if they correspond to the natural, divine, and eternal laws. So if you reject God, then you're rejecting at least the eternal and divine law. If you reject the interior life, then you're rejecting also the natural law, unless you redefine natural law to mean uh, the law of the jungle or the law of nature, which is completely different than what we mean by natural law which is a dictative reason, right? And so what happens in the, in the city of man is that their laws, their conventional laws become arbitrary and actually disordered where they depart from natural law. For example, protection of a woman's right to have an abortion. That is a conventional law that is diametrically opposed to the natural divine and eternal law that says you don't kill innocent life. It's impermissible always and everywhere to kill an innocent. In fact, it's one of the sins that cries out to heaven for vengeance, spilling the blood of Abel. It's absolutely unconscionable. But you look in the city of man, and they don't even, they, they don't just love that law. They will fight for that law to the death. They will kill you for that law. And they'll kill a lot of children, and they'll ruin a lot of lives in the process. So ethics is what we call practical philosophy, as opposed to epistemology and those others that are theoretical. Um, this practical philosophy says, once we know the truth about the nature of reality, 
we are bound to act in such a way that we conform to not just our natures, but to the proper ends of man. And so ethics in the authentic school says something like, in our classrooms, we don't have classroom management like the secular schools. We have classroom leadership where my expectations of you are virtues that I can name for you if you want. And in the modern public classroom, the laws are convent or the classroom management is conventional, like don't chew gum, don't call people names, don't, you know, a bunch of arbitrary laws that are ultimately not really connected to natural, even though they do bear some semblance sometimes. So the importance of ethics in society can't be overstated, but we have a real problem with arguments between secular humanists who believe we can make a just law with no anchoring in natural law or in God. You can't. Or the Christians who believe we have to anchor our laws in the nature of reality and in the truth about the existence of God. Mm. And so we have a huge problem here. Huge problem. Yeah, I used to see that a, a lot in secular schools when I very taught in London, whereby the school had British values, these arbitrarily defined British values that they tried to make the sacred writ, and it was yeah. not playing at all. <laughs> what, what, what were they? What were some of them? Oh, the, the rule of law, uh, in that kind of crude sense, uh, democracy. Like, democracy, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's the French Revolution, like liberty, yeah. equality, and brotherhood. You know, those are the three new values, and those those won't work. Um, I want to ask you a bit more about what we're describing, Stephen, and how it prepares us, directs us to uh, the kingdom of God, and even I would say we're participating in God's kingdom in part now and will fully in the new heaven and new earth. But I, I want to just um, talk about in light of the point to the classical education is lifelong, whereas we have this conception in modern secular education, you know, like the factory set and John Taylor Gatto critiques, where well, you do this for this number of years. Again, it's arbitrary, you know, maybe seven years here, and then you do high school or whatever it is. And then well, you don't really learn. You're not really educated after that. But right. <laughs> would you like to speak to that? Yes, yes. And they think they're done. And um, I, 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 one of the great graces in my life is that not paying attention to school, when I graduated from college and started my professional life, I learned that it was essential for me myself to begin my own education. And it only began after after those years of trying to figure out what was wrong with the schools. And, and now to this day, I recognize, unlike so many, that I am still uneducated. And uh, by contrast, my, my brother and sisters who are secular humanists, they literally stopped learning at college graduation. And it's bizarre because when I talk to them, it's like talking to uh, uh, an older teenager in sophistication and uh, there's no there there cannot be philosophical discussions there can't be talks about literature because my family like so many others like the vast majority they stop when they get their degree because they they've been conditioned like pavlov's dog to think that's the end mm-hmm. oh you got your degree you've got your credentials therefore you're educated and and in that sense the term education is abused tremendously if we look at somebody with a college degree and then say to ourselves that's an educated person. They have a degree. That's a non sequitur today. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I would defy someone to show me some people who are educated. And there are, there are them out there. There are some really good souls out there, um, but not that many. So, And uh, I think, too, in, in contrast to what we described earlier, where you're just 
the mercy of the market or the state and everything as that scales then societally we are directed towards those things and we use the metric of what is useful just stay in line with the utilitarian philosophy whereas classical education i think has this understanding of leisure or properly understood i would wonder if you might describe that in the way that joseph people and people like that describe leisure or leisure and murder Maradler and these wonderful classical educators and why it's so vital in becoming truly human and um what 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 drives you've experienced yourself in that more leisurely understanding of learning yes it's really fascinating because it's been taken up by the good classical schools they say this is an education in useless knowledge <laughs> And, and it, that would be misunderstood by the city of man, because it's not that it's useless, it's that it's not utilitarian. And the modern city of man school is exclusively utilitarian. And there's a great irony here. This is really important. I'll get to leisure in a second. But C.S. Lewis has his principle of first and second things. This is so important to get. He says, we can understand principles of truth as first things and its effects as second things. And he says, when you put first things first and second things seconds, not only do you get first things, but you get all these second things thrown into boot. And by contrast, he says, but if you invert the order and you put second things first and first things second, not only will you lose the first things, but you won't have the second either. Mm -hmm. And this perfectly describes what happens in the city of man who puts exclusively second things first, it's purely useful, purely utilitarian, purely practical. You condition all these kids in scientism, materialism, atheism, and all this other garbage, and you claim you're making them ready for the workforce. And when they graduate, they're pretty much useless for that, unless they've had good families. And then ironically, you take an authentic classical Christian school whose, whose mo model is useless information through the mode of leisure, we say in leisure, you're receptive, you're at rest. You're receptive to take in from the teacher what is true. And when you cultivate uh, the arts, uh, the liberal arts and, uh, and enter into philosophy and theology, which are wonderful sciences that require leisure to take in, to read well, to contemplate, to do what man does best at his highest, is to contemplate and meditate on truth. And you can't do that when you're in the midst of a utilitarian endeavor. Can't happen. But here's the beautiful irony. In the useless education, these souls are so well-formed that they're fit for everything. They make the best workers, the best husbands, the best fathers, the best politicians, they make the best everything. And the secular school who only cared about preparing them for useful things, they make the worst. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Because I mean, I, I can't tell you how many students I've spoken to, thousands in both sides. And the difference is night and day. Mm -hmm. I'm taking the, the classically educated kid any day of the week. And so are real employers. You can look this up. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Stephen. And um, next, I would love to ask you a little bit about the intransitive arts of grammar, logic and logic and rhetoric that you mentioned previously. And I wonder maybe if you could tell us briefly what they are, why they're so important. And perhaps we can then incorporate some of your wonderful articles and the importance of grammar here. And the way you describe grammar is a, a lot more comprehensive than what modern people believe grammar is. <laughs> 
That's right. That's right. So if we think of the distinction between the word transitive and intransitive, trans, very popular word today, it means it means to, to transport. It's a materialistically reduced term in a sense to say transitively do something. So an art that's transitive uh, really could be something like woodworking, where materially you take tools and, and a material like wood and you build something. That's a transitive art. Um, something that's intransitive goes beyond the material aspects of it. And what most people don't realize today is that grammar and logic and rhetoric are intransitive arts because they go far beyond the material. And the aim, the, the product of the liberal arts is a product of the mind that is intransitive. The goal is to cultivate an understanding of concepts. And this is a purely intellectual activity that's not understood by those who have reduced grammar, logic, and rhetoric to transitive arts. And I haven't seen a school, and I know they do exist, I haven't seen a school that hasn't reduced grammar to a transitive arts. And here's how you know. When they give you a workbook or a worksheet that has you diagram sentences, which is a good thing to do, by the way, diagram sentence, identify verbs, nouns, adjectives, and just do your, all your diagrams, and that's where it ends. That's a transitive abuse of the liberal art of grammar. And it's not liberal. It's utilitarian, and it's measurable, and it's quantifiable. But that's not the fullness of grammar. That's a reduction and an abuse of grammar. Same thing happens with logic. Here's your sign. If you take a logic class, and they teach you logical fallacies, and that's where they begin, and then they teach you something like informal logic, then that program is run by and invented by people who have taken the intransitive art, liberal art of logic and reduced it to a transitive art of informational logic, informal logic, informational. Logic is a formational art to form the intellect to encounter truth. Informational logic is to give kids information that you can measure on some kind of standardized test. It's an extreme abuse of the art. So. Something people don't know is this. I ask them, what is an art? And everybody thinks they know what an art is until you ask them. And uh, school teachers, I'd be embarrassed to ask school teachers because I don't think they have a clue what an art is. Um, so an art is a fixed and definite procedure established by reason such that human activity reaches its due and proper end. That's a little bit of a mouthful, but it's really worth considering that when we say it's a fixed and definite procedure, you can hear the city of man going, there's a thousand ways to skin a cat. You don't have to do it this way. You can do whatever you want, whatever you feel like doing. Well, a true art is not like that because the true art assumes a formal and final cause. It assumes an appropriate end to human activity that perfects a thing according to its nature. And you can't substitute that definition of art for someone who does finger painting and calls it a Picasso or whatever it is these, these kids do today, mm -hmm. right? It's really incredible. So grammar itself, if I could just give one example, this might help. We say grammar to understand, okay, grammar, logic, and rhetoric really are a kind of a single field of study having to do with language, okay? So the primary question is, where does language come from? Is language natural or is it conventional? Is it a gift from God? Or is it purely man-made? This is a really important question to begin with if you're going to delve into grammar. In the authentic school, we understand that the perfectly spoken word of God that we call the logos is Jesus Christ. And that every single 
linguistic articulation is a participation in the logos or it's an abuse of speech, which means it's not even communication. So there is the word in the transcendent reality of things. God speaks the perfectly spoken word about himself, which is the revealed truth, Jesus Christ. And that really is the ground or the end of grammar, the alpha and the omega. So you begin with this idea. Language comes from God. The gift of speech comes from God. And there is a purpose and nature to language, right? And we ask, what's the purpose of language? What's, you know, the nature of language is the logos. The purpose is to convey truth in the service of the other. If you thwart any one of those two aspects of the purpose of language, you're abusing speech. And that's a problem. So grammar is specifically about, grammaticos in Greek means letters. And so let, you can see how letters combined make the symbol or sign for a word. So we don't want to confuse this here, but the relationship between the, the written word and the spoken word is vital to get. In the city of man, they invert the order and say that the written word is more important than the spoken word. And that's not true. The written word is actually a reduction of the spoken word. The spoken word is a reduction of a real thing. The real thing is, is an indicator pointing to the creator. The primary efficient cause of a thing is God. So grammar goes from the letter to the concept, to the thing, to the creator in its fullest rendition. I hope that makes sense. And we, we've got to recover that notion of grammar as, as in that fullness to begin to even articulate that, 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 that these things are grounded in truth. So if we said the nature is to speak truth in the service of other, that implies that there is a truthful, discoverable order to the nature of reality. And here's where Aristotle comes in. Aristotle has in the organon the 10 categories. It's substance and nine accidental categories. And if you go deep enough into grammar, you will discover that these 10, 10 base categories of the, of the nature of reality are the categories for every single grammar in the universe as we understand them. Substance is nouns. The verbs are different kinds of activity. There's adjectives and adverbs in the descriptions of the categories. And it's really, really beautiful. So I would think that anybody who's going to teach English or grammar or language arts really ought to return to the Aristotelian ground of grammar, which is the categories, and then discover what a guy like St. Augustine might say about the nature of language in On the Teacher and recover the true liberal art of grammar instead of just using the worksheets in the city of man. See, that mm. was a lot. That was a lot. Excellent. Thanks, David. Just went crazy. Uh, just uh, as you were speaking there, I was thinking about uh, Jordan Peterson recently at Franciscan University in Stephenville, actually, where he talked about the, the Bible and the parts of the Bible. And um, it's not just true in a kind of crude sense that we would speak today, but it is the precondition for truth itself, the word the book or series of books that undergirds all of these different books and um, that even historically speaking this is true so the skeptic is that's something that the skeptic modern secularist is going to have to wrestle with and uh, tom holland the way he talks about the influence of the christian revolution in history in his book dominion 
and mm. that oftentimes modern secularists will even just steal. I suppose it's like uh, what Chesterton describes as the virtues run amok, where they will steal one part of the Christian or Judeo-Christian tradition and use it against the rest. And That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I miss Jordan Peterson at uh, Franciscan University, but I was just there a few days after, and I, I got to meet uh, the president, Father Dave, who I heard was just wonderful with Jordan Peterson. Uh -huh. And I heard Jordan Peterson was awesome too, mm. but good for him. I hope you do get to connect sometime, though, maybe, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I'd love to, You're right, right. And uh, I want to ask you next, Stephen, just uh, uh, based on one of the things you said there, about art. I want to ask you maybe what is an example of a wonderful piece of art that you you think displays what, what you describe and maybe one or two of um, the great works that you're particularly drawn to and why? Oh yeah, no, you know, I mean, uh, that's really a tough question. So, uh, because I mean, there's different kinds of arts. There's fine arts, there's manual arts, there's liberal arts, there's, uh, there's music, there's painting, there's sculpture, there's all these different beautiful arts. And maybe a contrast would be something like you say, well, there's Jackson Pollock and his method is to flick paint on a canvas from a distance, you know, and my, uh, my bio dad is a, is an artist. So he says, and his art's probably a little bit better than Jackson Pollock's. <laughs> probably not probably <laughs> anyway, it's terrible. But if you take a guy like, like Raphael and you look at something like the school of Athens, there's, a, there's an opportunity through that art that is done the way an art's supposed to be done that you can enter into the world of the artist and entertain dialogues with Plato and Aristotle. And Raphael himself is in the painting. I, I think that's a really beautiful example of a way to enter into an art because it's so beautifully done. And, and the standard of beauty is objective, not subjective. So that's why modern art, so much modern art is so trashy and so terrible and so ugly that the, the modern school has to cultivate um, a tolerance for the ugly and eventually a love for the ugly that's the opposite of what an authentic art is. So you have Michelangelo and the David, you have uh, wonderful sculptors, you know, the Sistine Chapel, those are, those are remarkable works of art. You have architecture all over the world, go to, go to Vatican City, you know, look at St. Peter's. Yeah, uh, beautiful art is, um, a thing that resonates with the soul that adheres to objective standards of proportion and, and, uh, and weight and measure and perfection. So, so many things. My, my favorite kind of music is Baroque, if it's not polyphony. Um, you have different, different kinds of classical music, like the Romantic era and the Victorian. And, the, um, and then there's modern classical, which I'm not a huge fan of. I think it's less beautiful than Bach, than, than some of the Baroque figures that move me, Handel, um, things like that. So I particularly love the Baroque period of music. I love, I love some of the Renaissance painting and, and sculpture and uh, things like that. So did I answer the question? No, that's good. Yeah, thank you. And um, yeah, no, that's great. And I, I just want to touch a little bit more on rhetoric. Um, oh, yeah. because, in part because modern rhetoric has this kind of ugly connotation and uh, we talk about this post-truth age and so forth and the abuse of language coming right yeah. down from that nominalism to today means that there's so much empty rhetoric and frankly we think of politicians i think however i think yeah. if you show oh, yeah. tradition shows rhetoric it's in its proper context is good and important for a healthy civilization and actually forms one of the building blocks of a good education. Can you share a bit about the history of rhetoric, why it's important and where it fits into the life of um, christian life of virtue 
Absolutely. Now, if I want to remind myself that I'm not a very good reader, I pick up Aristotle's rhetoric and I highly recommend it. And I, I try to read it. It's a really a fantastic book, but it just reminds me of how illiterate I actually am. But I can tell you this, when it comes to rhetoric, we know that when, when it means to speak publicly, right? We know that there are three aspects of the human person. There's the intellect, the will, and the appetites. And corresponding to those rhetorically is logos, which is an intellectual appeal, ethos, which is a moral appeal, and pathos, which is an emotional appeal. These are the three kinds of appeals you can make in a good speech. And the well-ordered rhetoric has logos, ethos, and pathos in the right order. What we'll notice in the modern age from politicians is that it's nearly completely pathos. They make an emotional appeal. We, uh, we live in a culture of fear with this recent three-year pandemic where they've tried to terrify everybody. They've abused science to terrify people. And that kind of rhetoric works, right? Because the world's still hiding behind masks sometimes. Um, but that's a, that's a nightmare, the, this abuse of speech. So modern rhetoric is really abusive. But if you go back to ancient Greece, you'll notice that there were rhetoricians that were known as sophists. They were teachers. They called themselves the wise, and they would accept money to teach, teach young pupils how to think and how to speak, how to, how to read, think, and speak to be effective. So the end was gain. The end was political power. Contrasting the sophists, you have the philosophers. And the philosophers, like Aristotle and Plato, would have would have not accepted the sophistry of using rhetoric to manipulate people. They would have hear, adhered to the, we speak to convey the truth in the service of others, which requires all three aspects of rhetoric, logos, pathos, and ethos, in the right balance to teach and instruct and draw people into a relationship with reality. So, so rhetoric is absolutely key and in rhetoric, it's key to make the right logical distinctions, to make the right moral claims, and to make the right kinds of appeal to emotion. And, and it essential, it's essential in the, in the real school. It's non-existent in the modern school. The modern school has rhetoric in the way of the sophists. The, the authentic school must have rhetoric in the way of the philosopher. And to get a real ground in that, try to read Aristotle's rhetoric. It's a, it's a fantastic book. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Thanks, Stephen. And uh, I want to look specifically at the scriptures now, just briefly, and talk about, um, you make a beautiful application of the parable of the sower. So I think it's important, um, building on what we have been speaking about, to understand Christ as the greatest rhetorician, the greatest philosopher. There's a, there's a wonderful book by Pennington, Jonathan Pennington, recently about Christ, the great philosopher. He talks about how Christ is a virtue ethicist and builds upon Aristotle and all of these wonderful uh, thinkers. So what then, I suppose, within the Christian context, what does it mean to be a soul farmer and uh, to cultivate the kind of inner landscape such that the sower really sows the seeds of truth? And um, so there's a potential for an abundant harvest, I suppose. Yes. Oh, I, I think the parable of the sower for the authentic school is the perfect image to understand the nature of the authentic teacher and student. Uh, it requires you first to recover the fact that man has a soul. Man has an interior life. And that interior life exists in the real world. So I like to think of the ground, the existence of all reality, the ground, as as God, 
I like to think of the water that's necessary to grow things as the Holy Spirit and the sun by which we see everything as, as Christ, the revealer of truth. Now, this is just a, this is an analogy. I don't think it's biblical or sanctioned or okay, but that's the way I think of it. And then I think of the human soul as its own microcosm, its own world. And in this interior life, we're born fallen. And if you think of the landscape inside the soul, you're going to have rocky terrain, it's going to be full of weeds. It's going to be deformed, which requires us to remove rocks, soften the dirt, make the land ready for the seeds of truth to be sown in the soul. So it, that parable is wonderful because the sower, who is God, comes along and sows the seeds of truth. And sometimes it falls on rocky ground. And when it falls on the rocks, the seeds can't even germinate. And then sometimes it falls on ground starts to take root, but it's shallow, so the sun scorches and kills it. Then sometimes it falls on ground where it takes root, but in that ground, there's a bunch of weeds. And the weeds here can be likened to ideological things that we believe, untruths that we believe, falsehoods. Um, these weeds choke out the life of the seeds, but sometimes, Christ tells us, the seeds fall on fertile soil. And when they fall on good ground, they take root, the, the harvest grows and it's an abundant harvest. What do you say, 60, 100 fold of the, of, of, it's just a beautiful image, but, but here's the thing. All of us have the opportunity to wake up and realize that most of us have rocky ground for the interior life, if not weeds everywhere. We have a, we have a spiritual, moral, and intellectual duty to pull out the weeds chuck out the rocks, soften the dirt, and prepare the soil for the inner landscape. And this is a great image for what the teacher is supposed to do with the scholar. The teacher is not the sower of seeds. The teacher is like a midwife. All we can do is help students prepare the inner landscape so that the seeds of truth that come from the sower and his ambassadors can be planted and take root. And this image is so important for anybody who wants to become a teacher. To get this image would radically change your life. It radically changed mine. And the harvest is abundant when you don't mistake yourself for the true teacher, because we're not. All we can do is be an, of instrumental service to scholars and do the same work ourselves and find the right teachers, even for ourselves, and do the work to clear away our own interior artifacts of the bad landscape. Beautiful. Thanks. So, yeah. think hey, and since I'm on here, can I mention that I am looking for teachers? I am I am seeking out young faithful college graduates who have a heart for Christ and want to lead children to God by helping them clear out the inner landscape in the Archdiocese of Boston in Massachusetts. And we are looking for faithful souls to come and spend a summer with me where my wife and I were forming a six-week um, art of teaching boot camp to prepare young graduates who are driven by Christ to be faithful teachers in Catholic schools. So I, I'm looking for that if anyone's interested. Oh, yeah, wonderful. I think I know some people actually send you a student. <laughs> Please send me some. <laughs> so um, I think that that was doubly music to my ears in part because I love Van Gogh actually and his uh, image of the sore, I think is stunning. So I was just thinking about that as you were saying too, it's beautiful. And uh, I, I wanna ask you next then, so those of us who, are, who really do see the dead end of modern education, 
and do want to uh, get out of the system, I think we have to acknowledge that we're going to have to make serious sacrifices. So we're going to have to turn our backs on some projects and even on people. But I want to ask you, why is that still important? And of course, right. And maybe what have been some of the challenges that you have um, come across in doing so? Yeah, no, it, it's it's really difficult because one of the one of the things that plagues humans is human respect. We like we like to be liked by others. We like to be in in communion with others. That's a good you know talk about virtues run amok. But mm-hmm. if you are to recognize that the modern school is dehumanizing, it's a kind of a Luciferian agenda, and you want to turn your back on it, you're going to lose a lot. And um, I've been a very unpopular school teacher for decades in my own schools. And I've been a very popular teacher in the classroom with my scholars because the, the, the harvest is abundant. So if you're a school teacher and you, you want to uh, turn your back on this, you can literally do that in the school until you get fired. But you have to close your door. You have to ignore what the experts are telling you. And you have to, you have to participate with the catechism and God to serve those scholars as, it, as they ought to be served according to justice. And uh, it's really worth the effort, even if you do it badly. It's worth turning your back on modern secular humanism and embracing the truth, and it'll probably make a martyr out of you. But one thing that you don't want to do is you don't want to lie to children. St. James said, not, be not many of you teachers, because you'll be judged by a higher standard. Jesus said, don't mislead the little ones, or you'd be better off having a millstone hung around your neck and flung into the sea. To me, those are much more important than my colleagues liking me. And so I can say I was never a popular teacher. In fact, I was a a pretty unliked teacher almost everywhere I went when it came to my colleagues and my bosses. And that's the price you pay. So that that, it's big, it's big. And I mean, and it even costs you family members sometimes. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of estranged from my family for the same reason. My little sister's a teacher and she's in the city of man. And it's just a mess. So yeah, it's a, there's a very high price tag, but it's so worth it. There is nothing, nothing like telling young souls the truth and watching them grow in grace. That's, that's an abundant harvest. I'd trade it. I'd rather be unemployed than do what they do in the city of man. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Amen. Thanks, Stephen. And um, I want to ask at a kind of societal level. So recently, quite recently, um, Cornell West had an interesting piece of very good actually on um, def- defending classical education. So I don't agree with him oftentimes, but this was wonderful. You know, he encoded it with uh, Jeremy Tate. And uh, I was quite surprised by that, but it just put, put in my mind that uh, how wonderful it would be for African Americans as one specific group to come to that great tradition, like someone even like Cornell who can refer to some of these great thinkers because he's had that education but because of the way there's the societal trends have played out and different things it's complex history of course that many of the african-americans amongst other people obviously of all kinds are off too poor and then on top of that you have the ideological kind of notions that we talked about as if this is just white people's education and so on mm-hmm. and everything actually universal for everybody and uh, some of those challenges um what are the main challenges maybe for especially for poorer persons whatever the background are and uh, who want to say come away from this disgusting modern education but can't for whatever reason 
maybe because of um, they don't have a classical school nearby them even simply or they can't afford them and so forth and what are some of the what's some of the good work being done to alleviate those societal problems I suppose or meet them yeah I don't I don't think there's a lot of work being done to alleviate that I can tell you this in Minnesota there's a guy named Kendall Qualls and he started an organization called Take Charge and and he and his wife they're just wonderful. They're promoting putting the family back together. I think that's the first thing is you say a mother and father with biological children in the home, that's the gold standard building block of civilization. And what you referenced about a classical education, it's for everybody. And you literally can't afford to do anything other than that. So it's going to be really hard to sell that to the city of man. They're not going to believe it. And they're not going to come with you. But that a classical education would be a benefit to anybody, even a soul who said, I want to be a janitor when I grow up, then a classical education is still a wonderful thing because it's human and humane. And it's, it's just good for everybody. Um, I don't even know how to address Cornell West. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of Cornell West. I think he's very no. nice. I think he's a nice guy. Uh, and I haven't seen what he has to say about classical education, but I imagine with his, with communism and and um, race ideology be very difficult for him to even know what a classical education is, even if he knows who many of the many of the classical figures are. Uh, I just can't even imagine. I, I, I'd love to read it and be be uh, proven or enlightened that I just have no idea who Cornell West is. <laughs> but I'd like to see that. I am tremendously concerned with identity politics. I think it's a raw deal. I think it hurts groups of color, groups of different ethnicities that buy into it. It just harms them. Because the truth is, what we share in common in our humanity is 99% of everything. So there's no real distinction between a human, an African-American human and a white human, except for maybe an artifact of skin color, but then you have culture and education. And that's something we can do something about. Mm -hmm. I don't even know how we begin the conversation because I've tried. Mm -hmm. It's very hostile, very hostile. Um, but I, I would be, I'd be willing to participate with anybody of color or white or anything. Hey, by the way, there's more white people that are woke than any other color that I know of. <laughs> so the conversations for everybody, woke is culture of death. That, here's the distinction. We didn't really talk about naturalism versus supernaturalism, but what we have here is we have the culture of life versus the culture of death and they're mutually exclusive. And the modern materialist is the culture of death. And it, it's not, it doesn't know a color. It doesn't know an ethnicity. It doesn't know an identity. It knows that it wants humans and that's it. So my, my proposition is that why don't we meet on the ground of life and why don't we begin to have our, our conversation here and now? That's my advice. Mm. And um, I think it's extremely sad too, because a lot of the, there's a, such a great Christian African-American tradition historically that seems to be um, under attack because of the hegemony of secular schools over African-Americans and they just become fodder for the kind of Democratic Party and the ideology to which they pander and so on. And uh, I think their history is being robbed for the, from them. Oh, yes. And, which is part of the problem in the first place whenever they came over from like Africa as slaves that they lost their names and so on. 
but um, that that's being even exacerbated now because they're robbed of that rich heritage. They're not taught even Frederick Douglass, Dr. King, the Reverend King and people like that. It's like Abraham Kennedy or some (laughs) charlatan. (laughs) Oh, charlatan. Ibram X. Kennedy is such a charlatan. And and Robin D'Angelo and these other race baiters, they're just terrible. Who wrote the uh, 1619 Project? Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones? And so I think what you're asking about is history. Look at history. The ideological abuse to history that wokeism does is diabolical. Have you looked at the 1619 Project yet? Unfortunately, so, yes. It's, it's embarrassing if someone looks at that and thinks that's history. They're deluded. I, even liberal leftists wrote to the New York Times saying there's a lot of historical inaccuracies here, and they got shut down. People that are not on our side of the, this argument, they even secularists recognize that that is such a perversion of history. It's just using a narrative, it's bad rhetoric, a narrative to advance the agenda of uh, what lies behind the Black Lives Matter movement. It's just devastating. I'm, I can't even emphasize enough. So we ought to do this. In the authentic school, you cannot abuse history for ideological purposes. We have to say what really happened. And it's ironic because the city of man people, they take a completely false narrative. And when you don't buy it, they say, well, you're not buying it because you're racist and you don't like true history. It's just, what do you do? (laughs) I mean, there's no conversation with somebody that morally idiotic. You can't talk to them. Hmm. You know, let's say, what is true history? Well, it's what actually happened. Father James V. Shaw wrote in one of his books, he said, if you say something happened that didn't happen, that's not history, that's ideology. And the vast majority of the 1619 Project is ideology. It's not history. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's an agenda. I think uh, so, the, the, the kind of uh, reification of this notion of whiteness uh, in line with what we described previously, co- taking a cue from a uh, Gramsci's notion of cultural hegemony and so on. If only you replace the word whiteness with, uh, say, government or state, <laughs> a lot of the time it would actually be right. The problems that have been caused by the state, as people like Thomas Sowell have shown, and even when it's well-intentioned, it uh, has had so many adverse kind of effects and um, the destruction of the African-American family traced by like, Democrats like Minahan, even back in the day, going through to today. And the, the, it's, such a, it's such a tragedy really all around. But um, I suppose in, in relation to what we're describing and uh, classical education, the Christian tradition, I, I hope based on what I see from from America we don't have it the same in Ireland um we don't we're very tied to the government even if we don't agree with many of their things on their agenda there's not the same emphasis in homeschooling and things like that whereas I see hope coming from America and I could be wrong but I want to ask you a little bit about that I suppose for those even poorer groups or some of the hope that is offered by homeschooling and even cooperatives and people coming together on a more voluntary basis and offering this to people, I suppose. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of things right now. It's uh, the people I encounter uh, make me so hopeful. Um, homeschooling has boomed. Thank goodness when the public schools went into the homes, it woke up a lot of parents who saw, wow, you're teaching this garbage to my children. 
Uh, what scares me is that it didn't seem to wake up more, but still we have millions of homeschoolers in America. And in general, when you meet homeschoolers, these are down to earth people who want to protect their children from the encroachments of the city of man. There's a brand new group called Moms for Liberty and they are in Flor out of Florida and they become national and they're getting moms together to go to school boards and, and absolutely not stand for critical race theory being taught in the curriculum. These are great movements. Um, now they're being really attacked by the woke crowd, but it's still a good sign. I think you're right. I'm encouraged that people are waking up to, to the woke agenda, um, whether it's gonna be enough to, to turn the tide, I don't know, but it certainly is hopeful to encounter so many good people that mm. care about these things that are important. Excellent, Stephen. And um, what, I suppose what role then does the accrediting system and the lure of university that it still has, and even corporate life uh, play in keeping persons tied to this kind of secular system, especially I suppose by dangling better jobs in front of university graduates, um, especially those crippled by student loans nowadays and the difficulty. <laughs> oh, what a mess. I, I am... A, um, I can't stand modern accreditation programs. They're all from the city of man. Um, I'm working with a group and we have a vision for a, a university we're calling the Collegiate University of St. Augustine. And we have this on the seaside on 120 acres where at the very front where, where the land and the sea are separated, we have a university. And then down at the bottom, we're gonna do agriculture and animal husbandry and then have an artisan academy. And in that artisan academy, we're gonna do um, carpentry, metalworks, plumbing and construction. And then we're gonna have an entrepreneurial section. And in the artisan academy, we're gonna teach entrepreneurship and Catholic ethics and philosophy. And then we're gonna have our university scholars go and become at least an apprentice in one of the manual arts, one of these trades, artisan trades. And in this vision, I'm thinking, I'm not going to get accredited. I don't want accreditation from the sources out there. So maybe we make our own accreditation program that becomes qualitative over the quantitative that it is today. But I, I, I don't, I think it's uh, a terrible thing to look at what the accreditation systems do and how it, it, they really try to tamper down and it eventually destroys authentic educational endeavors and makes them more mechanistic and more materialistic and eventually more communistic. So I'm horrified by accreditation. I hope I understood your question because I said a lot there. No, that's great. Thanks, Stephen. And uh, I, I'm not going to keep you too much longer, <laughs> but I, I do want to ask you about a few more macro trends. Sure. All right. So uh, another article that you wrote then, Stephen, was obstacles to evangelizing in the modern age for integrated Catholic life. So aside from education then, I suppose, what are some of the other main challenges to evangelizing the culture? And uh, you, you have written a number out. So one of them was feminism, which we spoke about implicitly at least, but maybe you want to speak a bit more about that and some of the challenges uh, to education and the, moder the proper uh, understanding of the family that feminism poses and so on. Right, right. Feminism, one of those huge obstacles to everything is huge today. It's just so big. Feminism is, it's a, it's a, it's, it comes out of the Marxist tradition, really. I mean, most people think it comes from the American uh, or, or, or English Wollstonecraft, and it, and it kind of did start there, sort of. And it's a reactionary movement, but, but Vladimir Lenin 
has this great quote about women being liberated from the home and the drudgery of housework and all this stuff. And it's become a rhetorical um, ideology based on the oppressor-oppressed dichotomy. So women are told in modern feminism that the man's oppressive, the woman needs to be liberated, and she needs to become equal to the man, only more equal, so she becomes the boss. And you have all these tropes about the gender pay gap, the fact that the man and the woman are equal, and that sex is a social construct. And none of these things are true. So when you convince little girls that these things are true, it subverts their desire to achieve their natural and beautiful ends. A beautiful woman is fully feminine, fully virtuous, and that's a great thing. But under the modern feminism, guys, <coughs> excuse me, that can't happen. Can't happen. She has to go and compete with the man and literally usurp manly virtues in order to pretend that she's a man because manhood is only a construct anyway. And so it's, it's the biggest maze and the biggest farce and the biggest insult to women that I could ever imagine mm-hmm. is feminism. And, and women love it. They just, they, they, they want to be in charge. They want to be, uh, they want to do all the things that the modern trope of man tells a man does. And in fact, it's ironic because if man's the oppressor and, and oppresses, literally feminism asks women to oppress men. To, to take something like masculinity and call it toxic, to encourage men to get psychotherapy and cry, to encourage men to really wear dresses and put their hair up in man buns and paint their nails and wear makeup. This is what we're seeing in fashion. Look at it. The guys are acting and looking like girls. And at the same time, you have this transgender movement to the point where men are competing in sports against women and winning. And what are feminists saying? It's just so ironic and so amazingly stupid. I, I don't know what to tell women, but you've been sold a bill of goods that has done nothing but cause you and your children harm. Because there's nothing more beautiful than a woman who's fully a woman and nothing more awesome than a man who's fully a man. And they come together in complementarity, complementarity, and make something so beautiful that it's inimitable. But a feminist destroys that in herself and in the men around her. And that's sad. Tragic case. So that is a huge block to evangelization because it begins with a rejection of reality and assert something that's not true, which makes you a law unto yourself. And of course, you can't evangelize someone who's a law unto themselves. Mm. Thanks, David. And um I think the next one I want to speak about with you is historicism, which again, I think we might have referenced implicitly, but I want to speak a bit more about that and why that's so important. As you said, returning to history is vital and it's historical imagination and uh, approaching history with that humility and so on. Would you like to um, critique historicism in contrast with that? Yeah, the historicism that makes us, makes us, uh, reduce history to a materialistic science. It's become social studies. And we miss what we, what we abandon in the historicism is the true narrative that is the tapestry and the fabric that for us stands between us and access to the reality of what took place in the past. So uh, a great teacher, Dr. Zwarneman, he wrote a book on history. I would recommend it, it's super short. And he says, in, in this, there's history A and there's history B. 
History A is what actually happened in the history of the universe. And then history B is the work of the historian who tries to bridge the gap between what actually happened and what we can know about it. So we need to abandon historicism, all the ideologies that use history to advance a false agenda and return to history B that has us bridge the gap between what really happened. And one of the ways we can do that is by recovering the narrative and seeing what that narrative tells us about the character of great souls who participated in historical struggles that even we face. So it's, it's a huge obstacle. And I mean, a great historical revisionism and historical abuse is prime in Hannah Nicole Smith, but you see it in all kinds of historians today. Um, rewritings of history. Um, somebody wrote 1491, I think, to to show that Columbus didn't discover America. I don't remember what it was, but there's so many bad history books that are not just historicism, but historical ideology. We need to recover what Dr. Zwerneman says about history. So get that short book as a way to begin to discuss that in your own homes. What is history? And let's stop lying about what happened in the past and then getting mad at people who disagree with the lies by telling them that they can't take true history. It's such an absurd farce. There's no conversation there. Mm. History is meant to be dialogued about. It's so beautiful. I love um, Hesiod. Hesiod is known as the, uh, not Hesiod, I love Hesiod, but I was thinking of, um, um, not Hesiod, who's the other, who's the father of history? It is Hesiod, no? Who's the father, Her Herodotus, Herodotus, the father of history. In the groups I spent time with going over history stuff, they call Herodotus the father of lies. And it's true, that's an ancient name for him, but they didn't mean it in the way that we would mean it today, meaning nothing he says is true. They meant when they first coined that term that some of his, his numbers were exaggerations. So, you know, the Persians had 20 billion people out there fighting instead of, you know, several hundred thousand. And a lie like that isn't the kind of lie that we associate with a lie today. He might have exaggerated. He told us he took, he took narratives from everybody and gave the best account he could. Herodotus is a wonderful historian who tells stories we should all know. But I'm afraid the modern world would dismiss him because they call him the father of lies. That would be a mistake. So that's that's my take on history. Yeah, it's, it's something out of the screw tape letters, <laughs> really. <laughs> yes, it's right there in the screw tape letters. Everything I got was from C.S. Lewis anyway on that article, right? <laughs> or did I get it from Chesterton and what's wrong with the world? I can't remember. Either, either way, it's good. Uh, they're the two best guys you could go to. And uh, I, it brought to mind what you're describing there, Stephen. I don't know if you've seen it, but Terence Malick's wonderful movie, A Hidden Life, about uh, Franz Jagerstadter, the saint in Austria who um, refused to swear an oath of allegiance to Hitler. It's such a beautiful story. But a lot of people have protested against uh, Malick because there's a lack of narrative, at least uh, conventional narrative in his movies like the tree of life but then restoring this element of biography alongside his beautiful cinematography made for just a stunning movie and it's it's a such powerful story uh, he's actually a saint now in the catholic church uh, a that are so i'd recommend that to people if they want to wrestle with what history actually means like the hidden life Oftentimes, then um, you've got history that's not told, obviously, and that's what Malik's trying to convey. Because you, in our crude conception of history, we have like, well, Hitler was here in 1941, and whereas it's a lot deeper than that. And I think coming to wrestle with history um, in a proper education shows that. 
And yes. um, next, sorry to go off on that tangent there, Stephen. Next, I just want to ask you a little bit more about proletarianism and some of the problems with proletarianism and how that is an obstacle, I suppose. What is proletarianism? Well, I, I can't remember because there are these questions for you so long ago, but I'm assuming that is to do with uh, Marxism and the yeah. kind of notion of the proletariat. Is that right? <laughs> I, I think so. I know I wrote that article many years ago, too. So, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm assuming it has to do with the, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat and the workers' revolution and the, how unions have become so such abusive lobbying powers today. So if you look at the teachers' union, um, in America, it's, it has an absolutely diabolical agenda to destroy children and America all at the same time. Um, I think that's an artifact of this proletariat revolution, this workers' revolution that's that's really promoted by Marx and modern academia. So that's a huge obstacle. When we don't even recognize the working class as a valuable thing, we recognize it as a sort of oppression or a slavery. When it's not or it ought not to be. So yeah, I think that's another problem. Class warfare, as it's presented, is, is a huge problem. Um, egalitarianism that goes into that saying, making the false claim that everybody should have the same outcome. That's really the end result here, is that you have groups of people saying, if you don't have an equal outcome, the reason is race, not other things that are probably a lot closer, like hard work, ethics, virtue, talent, all these things that come into it. So yeah, I think it's a, it leads into all of those other problems in a huge way when we pretend like the working class is, is like a second class or an oppressed class and that people who are in a higher class, that they've gotten their money by ill-gotten means. There are actually very talented people that work hard and, and profit and do well and contribute to society. That's a hard thing to reckon with the proletariat revolution. So, mm. it, and, and really, I think it's the, as Chester said, it's the, end, it's the gospel of envy. It's the fear that somebody next to you has more than you. That's a really foul societal thing, but it's an artifact of the culture of death. And it's one of the seven capital sins, envy, right? Mm. So it, it's born out of the culture of death. And it's, it's a real problem to evangelization as well, not mm -hmm. just education. Excellent. Thanks, Stephen. I think, again, that even when there is a good intent there, that, that it's, again, within the culture of death because it's not you're not using the right tools to actually achieve a proper equality. Um, so you're going through the state. Oftentimes, it comes at such a severe cost. I think as people like Thomas Sowell show, the, a lot of these well-intentioned schemes actually adversely affect many of these supposedly like oppressed communities and so on or in reality often they are oppressed communities but the intentions are actually not <laughs> not enough the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions i suppose if we're talking about screw tape letters and um just then to close for today because you've done a wonderful job in distilling so much and that we could speak about so much more Stephen. but is there anything else now that you're working on that you want to tell us about or that you still feel the passion to get involved with in the future? Oh, yes, yes. But can I address what you just said? Because that's so sure. important. I think it wraps up everything we've been talking about is that in the culture of death, these guys do have good intentions. They want to do good things. It's just that the unseen assumptions in the culture of death necessarily pervert their good intentions into bad activities. That's just the way it is. And inadvertently, in the culture of life, the good of true assumptions promote culture of life things. So good intentions in the city of God are wonderful, and they manifest beautifully. Good intentions in the city of man 
always manifest rottenly. They can't otherwise because the root assumptions distort the direction the intention goes. I just wanted to say that. But um, as, I, as I told you, I'm working on this university and artisan school. I'm also a senior, I'm, uh, the senior, I'm the executive director at the St. Thomas More Fellowship in Boston, where we're recruiting good teachers to come in. And I'm working with um, other schools as well, trying to cultivate teachers in the arts of teaching. I'm working on writing this book that you outlined for me. Thank you very much, Mark. And, uh, and I'm busy with a bunch of other things that I just really can't even name because it would be too much. But I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to God for pouring all this grace into my life. Um, and, and so it's a lot. Glory to God. And thank you so much for joining me today, Stephen. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you. And hopefully we can do this again sometime. God bless you. <laughs> Same for me, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. And God bless you and your family. Nobody can stop me. Ooh, I'm going there. Don't you want to go too? I'm going there. Nobody can stop me. I'm all